1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like, not, became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. So there are many sights and sounds and tastes to experience uh, on a visit to Toronto. But this past winter, there was a new one in town that you were able to participate in, and that was going to view the forearm of St. Francis Xavier. St. Francis Xavier's forearm was on a cross-Canada tour. You can buy the t-shirt, traveling around to different churches where folks could come and see this kind of icon, this relic of the saint's body, which is totally different than something we would do on a Sunday morning. But this morning, uh, we're going to end our summer series looking at people from the past in Christian faith and some of their contribution in the way that we can kind of be informed and challenged by their lives. And so I'm going to end off our series this morning by talking about the forearm that this man belonged to. I think it's the right one over there. Uh, St. Francis Xavier. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, St. Francis Xavier. We're going to end our summer series looking at the life of St. Francis Xavier and some of the things that I think his life challenges us to think about in our own life. So Xavier was born in a small castle in Navarre, which was an independent kingdom now part of Spain, uh, in uh, Merino sheep territory. And he grew up Catholic. And uh, this is quite a tumultuous time in Europe when he's born, if I can just set the context in that Um, The Europe we know today was just starting to be formed. So all these independent kingdoms and kind of higher level feudal overlords were being consolidated and um, places that had been kingdoms and people who had been noble were not becoming noble anymore as different people took over. And so this is kind of the tension of Europe right now in his childhood. And there'll be a few other things that I'll point to that are kind of really um, part of this time of his life. So he grew up Catholic in Spain and uh, his family was able to kind of get the money together for him to head off to the University of Paris. And when at the University of Paris, this man, Francis Xavier, uh, did not do much with books. Uh, the university will probably remember him as just a really good high jumper. He was uh, it's told to be more athletic than he was interested in books or theology or anything like that. And this vanity that he kind of had about himself around how good he was at sports is something that he reflects on later in his life as, as a kind of a sin that he had to work through. And the university at this time is another tense place. So this is right after Martin Luther's 95 Theses are posted on the door uh, a few years later, and so there's this mix in the universities of all these new Protestant ideas coming to fruition. There's Protestants, there's Catholics, there's humanists, all interacting, and so it's this intense time in university where St. Francis is kind of being exposed to new ideas. And as sometimes happens, you can get a weird roommate when you go to university. Some of you are laughing because you had weird roommates, and you're picturing them right now. So Francis is studying at the University of Paris, and Inigo de Loyola, not Inigo de Montoya, Inigo de Loyola, shows up. We know him better as St. Ignatius of Loyola. 
St. Ignatius, after a life-changing injury in war, sought to imitate St. Francis of Assisi, who I preached on earlier in the summer, and St. Dominic, and he wanted to win souls for God. He's described as this weird, old, limping soldier whose orthodoxy was being questioned by the church. And he was kind of old. He comes to university, and he stays in residence with Francis Xavier when Inigo is 38 years old. So you're going to university, and you thought your, weird, your roommate was weird, but now you've got a limping soldier who's super intense about his faith, who's 38, in the room with you. And uh, Francis initially is not interested in anything that Ignatius has to say to him about joining this kind of new, more intense version of the Catholic faith that, that he's hoping to kind of start up. And, and, and Ignatius would, would bug Francis and bug him, and he would, he's said to have used the line uh, from Mark's gospel, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? This is this kind of recurring argument he keeps trying to bring to Francis to try to enlist him in the new life that he's trying to call people to. And Ignatius himself later goes on to reflect about St. Francis, saying that he's the lumpiest dough he had ever needed. What a great way of talking about someone. It took him a while. Well, eventually Francis was convinced, and Ignatius and Francis and five others started what we now know today as the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus. They were looking to start a new order within the Catholic faith. They made vows of chastity and poverty, first and foremost. And it's been interesting um, to do this summer and see how many of these guys started orders that had chastity and poverty as the first two things that they focused on, when those are the last two things that we focus on in the modern church, I would argue. Uh, chastity and poverty as the first and foremost things that their order was going to strive towards. They're the least favorite things that we emphasize now. The other thing that they vowed at that time to do was a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, something that, unfortunately, Francis himself would never complete. And in seeking approval, as you have to do from the Pope, to have a new order that's not going to be condemned as a heresy, they made a special vow, which I think helped solidify their order as something legitimate under the Catholic Church. Their group had a special vow alongside these other ones to do the Pope's bidding. They were going to be sworn allegiance to the Pope. They were going to go wherever the Pope would send them and be subject to any conditions, no matter how harsh, in pursuit of whatever the Pope would send them on. A unique piece to their order, which I think is great. If any of you would like to swear a unique oath to your elevation staff to go wherever we want, and work under the harshest conditions for us, I would happily have you over at my house this afternoon to weed out my front garden, because I have not gotten it to this summer. So, I think it seems like a pretty good idea that some of us here should consider. But, I mean, jokes aside, it does, it does ask us to think about this Christian virtue of submission to one another as a part of Christianity. Another thing that we often don't tend to emphasize, right? That there's a sense that in their church model there was submission to one another and to the authority of others over them. That's something that we could maybe pause and think about as well. So because of this vow, these Jesuits were being enlisted left, right, and center to go to the most unknown places that Europe knew of. This is the time of expansion. Every week, the map of what we know the world is is getting bigger. This is exciting times. And so nobody's going to go but the Jesuits. And so they were requested by the King of Portugal to help expand the Catholic mission field into India. And uh, interestingly enough, and we'll come back to this later, Francis Xavier was not originally selected for this mission. He was to remain in Portugal but the day before this boat was going to sail away to India and presumably never come back, the other guy got sick. The other guy was sick, and so Francis had to take his place the day before, uprooted his life, and went to India. And this is an idea that I want us to reflect on near the end. So 
his whole life trajectory has changed. He sails from Portugal to India. We've got a map up here, kind of his whole journey. But the first one here is this big loop around Africa. And this boat ride took one year and 29 days. So to put that in perspective, I'd like you to sit for a moment and think about where you were on August 4th of 2017. So let's imagine you got on a boat on August 4th, 2017, and today you got to where you were hoping to be in the first place. That is crazy long. That took so long. Now, that does include a six-month stop um, in Mozambique, but this is just how people traveled, and boat conditions were awful. People are writing um, about what it was like to travel in these days, and the water is rancid. Basically, the only food you get is what you brought on. There's no cabin space, so everyone is like sleeping and hanging out on the deck for a year with no privacy, which has just made me think, and I hope I can challenge you, to never complain about your air travel again. The next time you are delayed 30 minutes and there's a crying baby next to you, please just remember that things used to take a year to do that journey. <laughs> And it, while it's still a long flight, it's certainly nothing compared to what they, they went through. And so Francis arrived in Goa, India. And for the next uh, number of years, he sailed back and forth between Goa and other parts of India. He was seeking to baptize and teach the basics of Catholic faith to as many people as he possibly could. He had kind of a simple um, way of thinking about faith that I think is pretty um, common of the time, which is just that he who believes and is baptized is saved. And it was this kind of mission that he set out on. And he, he also thought this wasn't just a drop in, do something quick, and then leave. He was constantly circling back to the same places that he had, trying to shore up what people were going through, um, re-encourage them in their faith, and continue to see them through with these commitments that they'd made. And we get a bunch of uh, pictures of what Francis is described with, with people who have written letters about what he was like at this time. He's described as someone who was always burning the candle at both ends in his day. He was always seeking to praise other people and seeking out the company of poor, simple folks. He was likely quite, um, I don't know what the word is, like gaunt or emaciated from fasting. Um, this kind of trite image of an icon is, is maybe not really fair. He probably looked more like this next image, which is a, a screenshot taken from the movie Silence, which you can watch on Netflix about some Jesuits a few hundred years later following in his stead in Japan. And this is uh, Kylo Ren, uh, if you can believe it or not, who is just completely... Uh, Skinny, and likely that's what he looked like because fasting was a big part of what he, he took on. His daily routine included caring for the dying and the sick, enlisting the help of all the local children to come learn the prayers and call people to faith. He would preach, pray, and spend his nights in quiet contemplation and personal devotion, sometimes sleeping for a few hours. So this is a life-worn ragged. They say at the end of his life, he died near 46. He was quite like he was going gray. Like this is just, he was wearing himself out for the sake of his mission. Um, another potential product of his time, but um, Francis was always patient with Christians who needed to repent. But he was a man of his time regarding others, writing off or dismissing any Muslim or Hindu he encountered. The Christians are right and the pagans are wrong was generally the sentiment of the time. Um, and he was often maybe ignorant of complex religious systems. And, and we can debate a long time whether we should fault him for this or we should acknowledge that this is just the world that he inhabited at the time. And I think I often get, I work in the church, but I often have a, a picture of people who work in the church and wear black robes um, as staunch, kind of um, boring people. <laughs> and uh, one of the letters that somebody wrote to describe him at the time talks about him being uh, a bit of a life of a party. And I think this kind of goes to the passage that Anthony read to us, that Francis was a lover of people. And uh, he was interested in, in who they were and encouraging them wherever they were at. And so this is a letter written about his time 
uh, in, in some of the islands that he later visited. And it's written in older language, so bear with me. So lax and corrupt were morals in Malacca that the father had great difficulty in bringing about reform. But here, more than at any other place of his sojourning, his prudence and charity became evident. Seeing that there was nothing to be hoped from mere exhortation or denunciation, he set himself deliberately to win the hearts of the sinners, and with such success that the city to this day is still marveling at his memory. By his charming address and conversation, he made them his friends and regularly came to watch them at their amusements and games, which he obviously enjoyed. Even their gambling did not deter him. If, out of respect for him, they stopped some game they were playing at his approach, he would pleasantly invite them to resume and even join in the amusement himself. You are soldiers, he would say to them, so there is no reason why you should live like monks. To be merry without offending God is better any day than grumbling and quarreling. In the same spirit, he used to invite himself to dinner with one or other of the merchants. He would highly praise the dishes and be the life and soul of the party. Afterwards, he would ask his hosts who was his excellent cook and might he see her. He would greet her very sweetly, tell her how much he had enjoyed her delicacies, bid her goodbye, remarking that she must be sure to become a saint. So it came about that not only the Portuguese, but their concubines and slaves learned to love the father greatly. When he had thus won all hearts, he would say to a selected officer or merchant that such and such a girl in his house was very beautiful and deserved a good husband. The man would be led to confess that he loved her very much, whereupon the father would say, why then not marry her, honestly and wholly, instead of living in sin with her and damning both her and yourself. The result would be a wedding ceremony. A lot in there, but we get this picture of someone who is not some prude jumping in. Certainly he's trying to encourage them in Christian behavior and have them come and, and see a different way of living, but is willing to participate in gambling with them, enjoy a good meal, and be the life of the party for the sake of the gospel and the God that he so loves and the people that he met and so loved. And so he continues to establish converts and move back and forth over land and sea, and he's really this forerunner, right? He's kind of blazing these new trails that a lot of other Jesuits and other missionaries would continue to follow. And so later on, after some time in India, he heads to some islands that few traders were willing to go to because this is the time of Europe being formed, this is the time of the Reformation, and it's also the time of the Pirates of the Caribbean. There are a lot of pirates out and about on the seas while he is trying to make his voyages between these islands, and, so there's, a, and there's a lot of cannibals, too. Uh, and, and different things like this that the traders and people don't want to go to. And Francis steps into these communities and is willing to risk these storms and the weather um, all for the sake of the gospel and meeting new people. Uh, it's interesting because, as one biographer, this biographer notes, we have a lot of um, letters of this time, right? So Francis is writing letters back home to Europe, and other people are writing letters from the same places. And so we can compare what were other people writing about and what was he writing about to gain a bit into his personality. And everyone else who writes letters about these islands and this time, is complaining. They're complaining about the storms, the weather, the bugs, right? Like Muskoka in the spring has nothing on the, the tropical Indies as far as bugs that can kill you. Uh, the bad food, the heat, all of these things are just are present in people's writing back home about how terrible they're suffering. And Francis, we don't get any of that in his letters. There's no sense of, I'm enduring anything here. This is just um, what he what he kind of assumes and doesn't even think it's worth mentioning, kind of the suffering that he's going through at the hands of the elements that everyone else was so clear to articulate was so terrible about these places. But he does write a lot about uh, the urgency of which he needs other people. He's begging continuously for more help. I think the weight, 
the weight of the ever-expanding world and realizing how many people out there had not heard about Christ was, was really weighing on him to the point that he was burning himself out at both ends um, for the sake of them. And one of these such letters describing the work he's doing goes viral in Europe, as you can do in the 1500s. And it gets copied many times and read out in churches all over the continent, um, telling of the work he's doing. And, and more people start to enlist in the Jesuits and see this is a, the, the work he's doing is something that we can follow. He keeps on writing and writing back to Europe, and he gets very little writing in return, as well as very little help, which I can only imagine is incredibly discouraging. And at this time, he becomes well-known as he travels around the islands and in India. He's noted by many people of his saintly character while he's still alive, referring back to his, his way of living, this life of, of caring for the poor day in and day out. On numerous occasions, Francis is said to have paused in his sermons. And he'll go silent, and then he'll change the topic after some time in, in silence to honor someone who had just died at sea. He would stop what he was doing and say, I think we need to pray for so-and-so whose soul has just passed from this world in a shipwreck. And a few weeks later, the ship would show up, and sure enough, either the ship was wrecked or the person who we'd been praying for had died. And so, this, I mean, this is this interesting thing of how do we record history. Um, there are, some of these accounts have more than 50 witnesses to saying, like, when the ship arrived, we asked them specifically, when did so-and-so die? And it lined up with what Francis was doing in church. And so, um, one of these kind of spiritual gifts that he's attributed to having. And so, through all this time, he's gaining a reputation as this humble, charismatic, gaunt, and, and super skinny with captivating eyes. And he meets a young man from Japan and learns about this country that was unknown to the West at the time. It was often kept off maps because people didn't even know where to really place it. It was believed to be a prime mission field. This, uh, this Japanese man that he met was informed that it would be prime because um, the Japanese had a highly sophisticated, I mean, I'm using these terms because this is maybe in comparison to Europe at the time, high levels of education. And uh, the man told him he had a devotion to reason as well, that this would be a group of people who if they were kind of argued with and they saw that his lifestyle reflected what he was doing, would just convert very easily. And, and of course, um, that is naive and is not what happened. But he returned periodically to India to manage affairs before heading off to Japan. And he sailed with one of these pirates. No Portuguese would take him, so he got on the boat of a Chinese pirate and headed to uh, Japan to further his mission work. And St. Francis and his writings is, is really the first glimpse that um, Europe had of Japan at the time. And he strove to meet the king of the continent, assuming that their systems would just work the same way that Europe did. Um, and of course, it was not so simple, right? There was a, a figurehead emperor similar to our royal family at the time, and, and many kind of different factions making up the island. And so his, his methods of trying to say, well, I've only got limited time, let's go from the top down, um, weren't going to work. And he honored the people when he was there. The, they say that he strove to build churches in the Japanese fashion. This wasn't like, let's just dump a European model of doing um, a church building into their way of living, but let's adapt to their culture and what we see, which I think is pretty neat. So the mission in Japan did not um, go as planned, and he had to return to India. And his goal was really to find a country where the emperor had the power that he believed an emperor should. And this led him to think that he could go to China. And if he could get to the emperor of China and show him the way of Christianity, then maybe it would dissipate from the top down. And on his way, he uh, died just off the coast of a fever, which is maybe no wonder. He died at 46 in a time when people were dying of all sorts of things. Um, he had barely slept. He had constantly been fasting. Um, it said that he died at 46. And in the course of his life, it's rumored that he baptized 30,000 people. 
So there's a whirlwind of a saint's life that had a forearm in Toronto recently. And so what do we do with this man in 2018? How does this inform us besides maybe uh, going to Toronto to see a historical forearm that has seen more of the world than I ever might? I think there are three points of reflection on his life that I want us to end with that we can think about in the coming week. First is, is approaches to missions. I, I must be honest that I tend to critique maybe the model that I read about in, in Francis Xavier and that in my observation it maybe makes a church that's a mile long but an inch deep. Um, but I think we can be challenged by what he was doing and how we go about our work. I think Francis Xavier, more so than I do, was truly concerned with the well-being of all humanity. He believed God was going to hold him accountable to his efforts and try to remain, and whereas I try to often remain far more comfortable in my life than push myself to talk about my faith to anyone. And I work at a church. <laughs> he had incredible love for people. And may we do the same. I think another point is the lengths to which he would go for the gospel. This is another challenge that we can think about in relation to our own lives as we see these examples from the past. He endured sickness and poverty, and he pushed his body to the limit. He never complained in his letters about all the harsh conditions that he was facing for the first time. It was just the assumed position of his devout Christianity at the time. He was totally committed to the Lord and whatever suffering he was going to be put through for the gospel. Which challenges me. I work with the youth here, and I love my job, but every so often we'll go away for a weekend. And I'll spend two nights sleeping in a tent next to the tent full of teenage boys who think that I can't hear everything, but we can because they're tents. And it's two in the morning, and I just want a good cup of coffee and a vegetable, please. Uh, and I'm ready to hang in the towel sometimes. But Fra Francis went for years into places unknown and to people who were ignorant and didn't... Um, didn't kind of grasp what he was doing, and uh, he had little help or support from back home, and he kept on going. And can we say this, that we would do the same? And I think we can also, going back to this initial voyage he took, I think we need to really reflect on the call God puts in our life. How open are we to quickly changing everything? He had a roommate who was kind of a weird dude, and it changed his life. The other guy was sick, so he got on the boat to go to India. It reminds me of the call of the disciples. Drop your nets, just come follow me. Put down whatever you're doing and follow after God. He, he was a lump of dough that needed a lot of kneading, but he went. Throughout this summer, we've looked at a lot of people who have set the bar high for what a Christian life can look like. I want to challenge us to not maybe simply hang our heads or think, um, you know, simply find voices that accommodate what we think is comfortable, um, which is often, if we admit it, maybe a laziness or an absence of interest in what's, what to do. But I, I want to challenge us all, myself included, to strive to follow um, this God who may call us unexpectedly into things new, a God we owe our lives to. I don't want to sensationalize that we're all going to be out and be like Francis Xavier and, and do this crazy stuff, but I I think we should be open to the fact that one or two of us could, if we were willing to stretch ourselves and push ourselves. Are we even willing to try? Are we even willing to hold our lives the way Francis did, the way these songs we sung this morning kind of invite us to, and see what God could do with our lives? So this week, I invite you to reflect and listen for what steps God has for you this week even, as he calls us higher and deeper, and as he will lead us. 
And I'll end with this challenge from the Gospel of Mark, said by Jesus, said by Enigio de Loyola to his roommate Francis. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And may we reflect on that this week and be open to what God is doing. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Uh, it's great to have so many folks jumping up at the front to help with different things on a long weekend like this. But now we're going to move uh, into discussion, and there's some coffee there as well. If you would like uh, prayer this morning, you can head down to the right to the study and uh, have a great week starting back into school and other fall routines.